1,500 BC. The pharaoh was building a new royal city. He needed workers, and he used the people of Israel as slaves. After generations of oppression, the people of Yahweh demanded their freedom. But Pharaoh refused to let the Israelites go. Moses warned Pharaoh that the Lord would visit plagues upon the land of Egypt. But Pharaoh hardened his heart. So the Lord sent a further plague, locusts. So Moses stretched out his staff over Egypt. And the Lord made an east wind blow across the land all that day and all that night. By morning, the wind had brought the locusts. They invaded all Egypt and settled down in every area of the country in great numbers. They devoured all that was left after the hail. Nothing green remained on tree or plant in all the land of Egypt. I think we should just imagine that locusts just swarmed everywhere. There'd be literally millions of locusts. And this is what we've seen today. So we see this today. The locusts just swarm everywhere. They cover every square centimetre or every square inch of ground. Um, and they just would have been this awful plague which would have been eating everything in, in, in their path. today, a land attacked by plagues of locusts. In all the countries bordering the Sahara, swarms of locusts descend on wide areas of farmland and devour the harvests. The nightmare returns every 10 to 20 years. African farmers despair of finding a way to fight back. They have no way of combating the locusts. Every time, the locusts leave a wasteland behind them. gross. Thank you for that. Wow. We are this morning going to be talking about the book of Joel. And one of the themes of the book of Joel is that of locusts. And since we don't live in an agricultural community, it may be uh, initially difficult to understand the metaphor of locusts and what that means. But as we dig into the book, I, I hope you'll find that it is a painfully practical book that likens us to not only Cincinnati with the 13 years ago visit of the cicadas, and the nastiness that was, all the trees buzzing and all the noises happening. But for the people in the book we're going to look at today, it was incredibly devastating. Devastation strikes when the locusts come into your life. As you saw in that video, what locusts can do today in Africa and other countries, and certainly in, in the nation of Israel as we look at this book today, it, it would darken the skies. It would be so incredibly dense. Let me show you a picture behind me what it looks like to have a darkened sky because of all the locusts. Imagine walking through your business, walking through your, your farm, walking through your, with your family, and there's just locusts everywhere eating up, destroying the very things you think are most valuable in your life. And it doesn't just come in one wave. The Bible describes it as four waves of locusts. The chewing locusts left. 
Phew! And then the swarming locusts came. Oh no! And what the swarming locusts has eaten, they left. Oh good. Then the crawling locusts came. Oh no! Then the crawling locusts left. Woo! And then the consuming locusts came. Oh no! Four waves of devastation. Four waves of tragedy. Like the song the band sang earlier on. I feel like I've just got a stroke of bad luck. And if it wasn't for bad luck, I'd have no luck at all. Have you ever had waves of locusts come into your life? Where you felt like, oh my goodness, now that was a challenge. We overcame it. Now it'll probably get easier for, oh, no, here comes another wave. And then another wave. And then another wave. If you've ever wondered how to deal with the waves of locusts in your life, that come and shred through the things that are most important in your life, this book is incredibly, incredibly helpful. National Geographic did a story many, many years ago describing just how powerful these locusts can be. And here's what they said. At the end of February, great clouds of locusts began flying into the land from a northeasterly direction so that attention was drawn to them by the sudden darkening of the bright sunlight. They came in enormous numbers, settling on fields and hillsides, There they laid their eggs in vast numbers. It was calculated that 60,000 eggs could occur in a 39 by 39 foot area. Inch. Sorry, thank you for that. Yes. 30,000 could come from a 3 foot by 3 foot, 39 inch by 39 inch area. And as they began to devour, as they began to crawl, they could create a path that would eat 400 to 600 feet per day. Shredding your family, shredding your community, shredding things you had more valuable. And for that community, it was their farm, it was their livelihood, it was their business. And what would happen is it would literally be shredded. The thing they cared about the most. That's what the locusts would do. And for you today, you may not, you know, have locusts in your life, but I bet you there's some locusts metaphorically in your life. And maybe it's your family. And the locusts that have shredded or devoured your life that have come in waves... Maybe it's one of family member has depression. Maybe one family member has an addiction. Maybe it's a broken relationship and you feel like it's a prodigal son or a disagreement. And no matter what you do, you can't seem to fix it. And this thing you care about so much, your marriage and family is getting shredded. For the others of us, it's our health. And the locust that's come into our life is a, a doctor's report. It's an ulcer. It's worry. It's stress. Or it's something more serious where the doctor calls to the text have come in and we need to sit down. It hasn't been good. And something you care about deeply is being shredded. For others of us, it's just our countenance. It's our happiness. It's our future. And things have come into our life that are devouring what we thought. We didn't think we'd be here. We didn't think we'd feel this way because of some circumstance beyond our control. Well, it's into this that I have shared a promise for probably 20 years with people in all those different areas. And a promise that comes out of the book of Joel. And the promise is so powerful. It's that God says in the midst of this moment, in the midst of this devastation, I will restore for the years the locusts have eaten. Hey, let's be honest. The locusts have eaten into your life many, many months and many, many years because of that circumstance, because of that relationship, because of that difficulty. But here's the promise I have for you. God can restore. God will restore for the years the locusts have eaten. 
So let's look at that together. In this series, we're going, uh, for about 25 minutes, we're going to summarize an entire book of the Bible. In this case, we're looking at the book of Joel. Let's describe a little bit about the book of Joel and what happens in that book. This promise is pretty powerful because the metaphor, again, is that of locusts. And God says, I'm going to restore for the years the locusts have eaten. And for the people who are in this community, the idea of locusts eating into their crops and lives isn't just a metaphor, it's a literal reality. They are, they are living in the midst of the locusts. They are struggling with the locusts. And, and the result of these locusts are so painful that what's happening is it is affecting their ability to provide for their families. More than that, because there's no vine, there's no food, uh, they don't have uh, money to go to sacrifice at temple. They aren't able to... Uh, drink they aren't able to feed themselves and so these locusts are coming in a way that is so devastating and so difficult that they're just not sure exactly what they're going to do and god says hey let's let's look at this together i want you to know i am still here you're wondering if i still care about you You're, you're wondering if i still love you you're wondering if i'm still around i want you to know that not only am i here not only have i seen what you're experiencing but i can restore i can repay for the years the locusts have eaten And I'm going to step into your circumstance. And I'm going to meet you where you are and help you in the midst of this. And I want you to know there's three main sections of the book of Joel. Chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3 in general. And in the midst of tragedy, in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of shredding circumstances. And for many of us, we'd say, hey, my family's doing well. My job's doing well. In general, I don't feel a lot of locusts. Except in one area. I got locusts, Chad, that are just attacking me in one area of my life. So I would say wherever we are today, whether most of your life's going well and you've only got a few you know, locusts gnawing on you, or whether you feel like it's come in waves, God has some promises on how we can have hope in the midst of difficulty. The first thing he says is that I want you to learn how to lament or grieve or mourn for the things that have happened in the past. Now, some of those things that happened in the past are your fault. You caused some of this. Other things have not been your fault. They've been caused by somebody else doing something to you. So there's two different categories here. Either way, there's a place for mourning, there's a place for lamenting, there's a place for grieving all those weeks, all those months, all those years that have been taken from you. So there's four different things, he says, that you need to lament or mourn for that affect, I think, a lot of us. The first one is you need to lament because your reactions, he's going to talk to the older men here, specifically the elders, and he's going to say to the older men, You need to lament, wail is actually the word he uses, because the way you've reacted to the circumstance, let me tell you part of what has caused this situation in your life. Part of the reason these locusts are here is because the older men in this area have become passive, and you turned to me, God, and you said to me, God, we don't need you anymore. God, thank you very much. Get out of our life. We don't want your protection. We don't want your interference. Get out of here. And what's the result of that? When you told me, God, get out of my life, keep your distance, I removed my hand of protection. I was a gentleman. I did what you asked. And the result is, when I removed my hand of protection from your livelihood, these locusts came in. So part of what's happening is your kids and your grandkids are feeling the result of your demanding that I remove my my hand from your life. So elders, older men, hear this, you elders. Give ear, all inhabitants of the land, he says. But pay attention. Give ear to this. I want you to understand, has anything like this ever happened before? No. Nothing like this has ever happened before. 
I want you to tell your children, and I want you to tell your children's children that they would let the next generation know. So here's what he's saying. There are things that we do, reactions we have, that don't just impact us. They impact the next generation and even impact the next generation. And part of examining your life, part of reflecting on your life, is realizing that, and the older you get, the more you realize that you've passed on a lot of locust behaviors, haven't you? You start realizing that the reason my wife, the reason my daughter worries is because I was a worrier. The reason my son struggles with anger is because I never got serious about dealing with my anger. Oh, generations are having their health, having their marriages or relationship eaten because of something that I didn't really get right. And there's a grieving process of that. Not a condemning process, but a grieving process of, oh, the way I react to worry, to stress, to money, to situations is affecting other generations. Several months ago, uh, a guy who was going through our men's study, a three-year men's study that uh, Pastor Doug leads people through, came to Doug as I was sitting at the hearth room and said, i got to tell you, that talk you gave last week about not having the blessing of your father, here I am, 50-plus years old, I didn't think that impacted me all, but I'm beginning to learn how to grieve the fact that I've always longed for the blessing. I've never heard my dad say, I love you, I'm proud of you. And the, the missing piece of that, my, my dad's inability to say and encourage me, has actually eaten a lot of years out of my life. It's li- li- led to some drivenness that's impacted the things I care about as well. So this first step is actually the kind of locus that we actually cause. It's saying our reactions, the way we react to circumstances, if we don't get serious about those, it's going to impact our children's children. Then he says, now, it's not like the way we react that causes locusts, it's also the way we act. It's not just our reactions, it's our actions. He says our actions also can affect future generations. And this is a fascinating one because he starts off and he says, I want you to awake, awaken, you drunkards, he says. It's a really fascinating word. Rather than wail or rather than mourn, he says, I want you to awake. Why does he say that? Why use the phrase awake? Well, to me, it's really fascinating that he would use that phrase because if you've ever struggled with or had someone in your life who has an addiction, and I'm talking an addiction to complaining, I'm talking an addiction to overspending, I'm talking an addiction to lying, and, of course, an addiction to alcohol or some other substance, it is like trying to wake somebody up, isn't it? Wake up! Do you see how you're hurting yourself? Wake up! Do you see how you're hurting me? Wake up! Do you see how you're hurting the family? Come on! Wake up, he says. Weep. I know I am. Wail for the ways in which you're destroying your health, destroying your liver, destroying our lives. Because you just keep getting consumed or controlled by other things because of new wine. It's been cut off from your mouth. These locusts have come and cut off your very supply. You don't even have the money. You don't even have the, 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 the grapes to make the wine that you want anymore because you've allowed this to consume and take over your life. It's been cut off from your mouth. A nation's going to come up against you because of these locusts. It's going to be like teeth, lion's teeth, digging into your life, and there's, there's pain and there's devastation. Why won't you wake up to this? Your actions, your reactions have ruined the fig tree and the vine. 
remember talking with a friend years ago, and he said, Chad, it's exactly where I'm at. I, I ultimately lost my marriage because of the locust of an addiction. I would come home, and because of horrible circumstances in our life, we didn't know how to handle it. And so we, neither one of us handled it well, but my wife in particular handled it through just medicating it through alcohol. But several days, several times, I would come home, and we had young kids at that time, and I'd walk in the front door, and the front door was left open, and my five-year-old, my seven-year-old were running around the house unsupervised, and the oven was even open a few times, and I found my wife laying on the kitchen floor, passed out. I said, honey, wake up. Honey, you've got to stop doing this. We've got to go to a counselor. We've got to get you help. But ultimately, she chose the addiction that was eating us alive and eating her alive over us. It's hard to wake up to how insensitive we are. It's how to wake up to how unself-aware we are. It's hard to wake up to how we allow drivenness or our kids or our job or our need for fame, or our need for approval. It's hard to wake up to the ways in which we are acting in such a way that's eating away at the things that we love. And yet God would say to us, I think he would encourage us, he would, he, he would beg us really, get down on his knees and say, please, wake up to this. There's a statistic that says that four, each person has 4.5 blind spots. Not weak spots you know about that you're working on. 4.5 totally blind spots. To what you're saying, I'm probably about 2. I'm not really a 4.5. <laughs> Why? She's a 6.2. 4.5. There are 4.5 things you and I are doing right now that are causing locust behavior to eat away at our lives. And if we don't wake up, to feedback. If we don't wake up to finding out what those things are, we're going to continue to see things devour the things we care about the most. We need to wake up to our reactions and our actions. Because if we don't, here's the next thing that happens. Oh, The next thing that happens is that our inaction, our passivity toward dealing with this, our passivity for getting serious about this, ends up impacting innocent bystanders. You see, what we tell ourselves is, you know what, my insensitivity, my anger, my you know, pornography habit, whatever it is, it's it's not hurting anyone but me. It's not even really hurting me, but if it was going to hurt somebody, it's only going to hurt me. So let's not make a big deal about it. Let's not you know, get too carried away on this. And so we become very passive about dealing with our habits, our behaviors. And what happens is, in the same way that these people didn't get serious about dealing with how this was caused by them saying, God, get out of my life, not only were they impacted... But so were the animals who were facing, with no fault of their own, a lack of land. He says, I want you to lament, grieve, like a virgin who's lost her new husband. I want you to realize that the field is wasted. The field that the animals are on is wasted. The land mourns. The grain is ruined. The, the new wine is dried up. The, the oil's gone. The oil fails. Be ashamed, O farmers. That your asking of God to get out of your life has caused innocent bystanders to suffer because of what you've done. The poor cows, man. It's utterly ridiculous they had to put up with this. And I could milk this joke for a long time. And I could stake an awful lot on this particular moment. And man, that face really rings a bell, doesn't it? Oh my goodness. Sorry. 
In fact, Jesus used to tell stories about two of these. They were called parables. Uh, okay, there you go. I'm done. <laughs> the cows, the field, the land is being impacted because of decisions other people made. And here's where this gets practical to us. How many times have we said, it's not going to hurt me, but not our reaction, not our action. It's actually our inaction that people we love, our colleagues, our spouses, our kids got impacted by our inaction, our passivity toward dealing with the habits in our own life. We were our own locusts. I remember when we adopted my son, Quinn just turned seven, and he is such a joy and such a delight. We go jet skiing together, and he just loves jumping up and down and, and laughing as we go on the jet ski together. And uh, he has autism and just has this ability to just soak in life in a way that no one else does. And he's got this laugh that just will, uh, it's like tasting heaven when you hear him laugh. But the challenge of the last seven years of being involved in the struggles of how do you handle a son that you didn't have autism and how does that affect your marriage and how does that affect your other family members is I was just at one point when my son Javen was in fifth grade spinning so many plates. The autism plate, the oh my goodness, we're all falling into depression plate, the how do we manage the family plate. And in spinning all those plates, I sort of lost track of the condition of the heart of some of my kids just because there's so many things I was trying to spin. And I sort of came to a head in fifth grade when my son Javen um, came to me and, he, and I found out just this sort of my inability to sort of track with what was going on in his life, my inability to sort of track with the things he was struggling with led to it just a, a, a head. And I was so devastated that I wouldn't know he'd been being bullied. I didn't know that he'd been sort of suffering under some pretty bad circumstances of some, what some kids have been saying to him. And I realized it wasn't that I was doing bad stuff. I was so busy trying to do, deal with tragedy, <laughs> deal with the, the tyranny of the urgent, and it was really tyranny of the urgent that I'd lost track of my son's heart. And that was a wake-up moment for me. And, you know, whether life's out of control, it's not your fault, it's just life's out of control, or whether you lost control because of something you did, the solution's the same. I've got to wake up to my inaction. I've got to get control here. I've got to re-engage. I've got to re-step into the moment here. And, and that became a real defining moment for me as a dad to say, I don't know if I can spin another plate. So we've got to re-look at the whole organization because we don't want anyone to be lost in the midst of this. And it's not because anyone had a, was doing anything bad. It was just the inaction. The fourth category, he says that when you have locusts in your life, whether your fault, whether your inaction's fault, there's a tendency for there to be a retraction of faith. Your faith begins to retract. You say, you say, God, I don't need you in my life. I don't want to, or, or just passively, you don't prioritize God in your life. Circumstance come in your life because of that. And then you blame God for the thing that happened. And that's what they're doing. They're saying, God, it's your fault these locusts are coming. God said, well, you did tell me to stop protecting you. So, uh, I guess so, but maybe another way to see this is that you told me to step out. I did, and now you're suffering the consequences of it. I would love to step back into your life. I would love to help you. But right now, you're taking the very circumstances that you caused, and you're blaming me for them. That doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. Your retraction of faith requires you to admit, man... Part of what happened here is that I made myself or my career or something besides God my priority. And so he, he turns to a group of people and he says to them, gird yourself and lament, you priests. You who minister before the altar. I want you to lament, you who minister before God. 
Because of what's happened with the locusts, there's no grain offerings. There's no drink offerings so that you can actually get right with me at the temple. This has affected your faith very practically in the midst of the temple, in the midst of how you minister. And I've just found over the years that it's often when people go through the most difficult circumstances by either things that happened to them or things that they caused, that they either draw closer to God or they have a tendency to retract their faith from God. Remember, a good friend was a real skeptic. I mean, real skeptic and didn't uh, believe. In fact, he was antagonistic toward people of faith. And all of a sudden, he had a season in his marriage when he realized that years of neglect and years of self-centeredness that he'd been unawakened to, he was about to lose his marriage that he truly cared about. And for the first time in 30 years, he started coming to Horizon. For the first time in 30 years, he said, Instead of just reacting to faith, I want to be open to faith because I need something because the things I care about are getting devoured. And I'm starting to realize that the same attitude I had toward God, I know better. It's the same attitude that was destroying my marriage. I know better and I'm always right. That's the downside to the book of Joel, chapter 1. But chapter 2, we move toward hope. Toward hope is despite what's happened, despite what you caused or what's been done to you, Despite the circumstances beyond your control, I have a promise for you. I can restore for the years of locusts of Eden. You can place your hope in my ability to restore. I can fix this. I can intervene here. I can help you recover from bitterness, recover from difficulty. I can step in. I love stepping into these kind of circumstances. If you learn how to mourn and grieve properly what's happened to you or what's caused by you, I will step in and bring you hope. And that's exactly what he does. And he, he says... I want you to put your hope in my future restoration. Think of it like this. Imagine a lumberjack. And a lumberjack comes into a forest. And as he comes into that forest, he is about to chop down the entire forest. And over the next week, every single tree in this forest is about to be destroyed. This lumberjack, as he is about to begin his work... He looks up into one of the trees and he notices a bird. This bird has built a nest in one of the trees he's going to chop down. So this lumberjack takes his axe, flips it over with the wooden side, walks over to that tree and goes, bam, bam, bam. The bird's like, what's going on down there? Bam, bam, bam. Stop hitting my tree. Bam, bam, bam. Stupid lumberjack. So he flies over to another tree. The lumberjack realizes, well, we're going to chop that tree down too. He walks over to that tree. Bam, bam, bam. Tweet, tweet, tweet. He flies over to another tree. Bam, bam, bam. And that lumberjack, bam, 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 chases, bam, 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 that bird all the way out until he flies out of the forest he's about to take down. Now, how does the bird feel toward the lumberjack? Is this the meanest lumberjack he's ever met? Or is it the nicest lumberjack he's ever met? The bird probably thinks he's mean. Lost my home. Lost my forest. But from the greater view of realizing what's going on here, the lumberjack cares enough about the bird to rescue him from building his nest or placing his life in something that's not secure. And God will many times come into your life and he'll begin whacking away at some of the things you built your life on. And you'll be angry at him. 
But what the book Joel tells us is that many times the reason God started knocking away some of those things in your life is because he wanted you to not build your life on something that's insecure, something that's going to be torn down, something that can be destroyed. And God said, the reason I allowed some of these difficult things to happen in your life is because I want you to build your life on something secure, my love for you, my identity for you, and my promise that I can work through anything, no matter how bad it is. That's a lumberjack. Three ways you can do that. He gets real practical. Joel does. Three ways that you can trust that he is a loving God that can bring about restoration even in difficulty. Number one, you need to turn your heart toward God in whatever that situation is. The most important thing is not external behavior. That will come. I want you to turn your heart toward me. I want you to understand who I am. I want you to believe in me. I want you to understand that I can work in these kind of situations. He says, now, therefore, he says, turn to me with all of your hearts. I want every bit of your heart in the situation. It could be your broken heart. It could be, God, I need you heart. But I want you to rend your heart, he says. Rend your heart. Return to the Lord. Turn, lean into me. Now, in the, in, this is the Old Testament God that most people think is angry. And Jesus shows up in the New Testament and says, sorry about my dad. <laughs> but no, the Old Testament God says, turn to me despite what you've done. Turn to me for I am gracious. I am loving. I am merciful. I am slow to anger. And I love, 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 love relenting from causing harm. I love to relenting from pounding on the trees in your life. But I'm willing to keep pounding on those trees until you build your life on something that matters, until you reprioritize your life to what really is going to work. I love you too much to let you keep doing the things that have been destroying your life. Turn your heart toward God. And sometimes that's hard to do when circumstances are going up and down. I love the river. A lot of people don't. I grew up uh, skiing on the river in uh, Illinois, and so I've been doing a lot of skiing on the Ohio River recently and wakeboarding. And, and I remember one time, my family, we bought this, this boat, outboard motor, and I was learning how to ski and became pretty good at it. So we're skiing down the Illinois River, right in Pekin, Illinois, and as we're going around, there's this huge bend in the river. And as we're going, I mean, these, it was just sort of typical. I'm skiing. I was a trick skier at the time, so I could trick ski on a stalm, and I'm skiing along, and then back to, uh, I think for a while I was using the two skis, and so I'm just skiing along for a while, and mom and dad up there, they're cheering on, my brother and my sister. And we turn this corner, and I have no idea how this happened. But as we turn around the corner, out of nowhere, a boat the size of like a carnival cruise ship surprises us. Like, how oblivious must we have been? We come around this corner, and all of a sudden, whoa! This boat is coming, and it is pushing a wake that is unbelievable. Whoosh, three, four-foot swells. And I remember every story my aunt and my grandma told at every Christmas gathering. I can't believe you're out on the river. I can tell you a story about somebody who died just last week, and that carnage, and they got sucked under the barge, and their bodies were there. Please don't go out on the river. All those noises are in my head now. Every horrible story Aunt Sandy told me and Grandma Eileen told me. And in this moment, I just know I'm in the middle of the canal. This carnival-sized ship is coming my way, and there are these waves. Like, I'm down here, whoosh, and I'm up. And oh my goodness, and I'm holding onto the rope, and I'm up, and I'm down, and the waves, and at one point the waves are so big, and my dad, meanwhile, is driving at, at speed, just trying to pull me out of the canal. My mom looks like she had a heart attack. <laughs> what do you do? At one point, as I'm skiing along, the wave is so big that the rope from my ski uh, 
uh, rope goes directly into the wave. I cannot see the boat that's pulling me. I'm hoping it's on the other side. I can't look over the wave. I know if at any point my dad slows down a little bit, I could fall and get stuck into the barge. All you do in those moments is two things. I just held on. Hold on, and I trusted my dad. And I, the rope's starting to come up. Pierce is all, hey, is there, dad's still there. He looks nervous. Dad never looks nervous. This is not good. Mom, I think she died. And we go back down. We go back up. Oh, no, now the rope's going right in the wave again. Hold on. God, I'm going to turn my heart down. I'm going to turn my heart towards you. You know what you're doing. I can't control your speed. All I can do is hold on. And reclining your heart toward God, returning to God, to saying, God, I don't understand the circumstance. I don't know whose fault was my fault or other people's fault or a broken world or free choice. I don't know any of that. I just know I need to hold on, and I'm hoping you can be my engine. You can be my strength to pull me through this. That's all that's going on here with you. Turn your heart toward God idea. If you do that, if you can trust me in the midst of that, then I, number two, I want you to place your hope, place your hope in my restoration. There's a really cool part of the passage. He says, in the same way that you had this famine and all of these uh, vines and all this food in your life and it has just been eaten away, I want you to know that I can't wait to have pity or have compassion on my people. I love having compassion on my people. And if you will turn to me, and if you will have hope, I will send rains. And I will bring up out of this land, I will grow out of this land that you think is destroyed, that you think can never change again. You're like, I went through a divorce, I'm never going to get married again, I'm never going to be loved again. You're going to say, there's no way our family's ever going to be together. After what happened, after what she said, after what I said, there's no way this can be fixed. God said, if you will trust me, if you will turn your heart to me, if you will hope in my restoration, I will grow out of the very ground that was devastated. I will grow out of the very soil that has caused so much pain in your life. I will begin to grow new seeds of new grain for new crops. And I want you to know that you can be satisfied again. Fear not, he says. Be glad, O pastures. Be glad, O land. Be glad, O people. Have hope, O farmers. There can be a new day, he says. Trust in me. You do not need to fear. I will cause my rain to come down and you do not need to be afraid. You can't make it rain. You can't grow the new wine out. You can't find hope. But if you will put your hope in me, I can bring hope out. And this is where he says that promise we began with. For God will restore for the years the locusts have eaten. Yes, the crawling locusts, the consuming locusts, and the chewing locusts. The great army that got sent among you. But you can eat plenty and be satisfied you want that kind of hope? To know that even in bad circumstances, God can work good things. You turn your heart toward God. You place your hope in his restoration. And you look historically at how God did this in history as a confirmation that this isn't just rainbow and lollipops uh, thinking. This actually happened in history. He says, three, you can look to the cross and Pentecost to see how I did this. So ultimately, the ultimate restorer... For locusts of eaten is Jesus Christ. And God came to earth through Jesus 
and allowed himself. He allowed himself to let the locusts eat him. He's beaten. He's bashed. He's crushed. Locusts have eaten away at him, his very body, his soul, his face, ripped out his beard. And as he is crushed, as he is allowing the locusts to eat him, he makes a promise that he will not only raise himself, but that he will use this moment of the locusts eating him to start something that will change the world. And 50 days later, at a festival known as Pentecost, a Jewish festival that God started way back in the Old Testament, it's here at Pentecost at the temple in Jerusalem that God restores for the years the locusts of Eden. Because when Jesus leaves, he sends his spirit to come upon the temple. And it's here that Peter preaches a sermon and what we know as a church and the church that has spread through the entire world and brought hope and peace to the orphan, to the widow, generosity, turned the world upside down. It all began at Pentecost, where the Spirit of God came. And Peter, the Apostle Peter, preaches a message from the book of Joel, right from this passage that says this. He says, it shall come to pass in those days, he's looking forward to this moment, that your old men will dream dreams and young men will have visions and and God will come and visit with my people. And anyone who needs my help, anyone who calls upon my name can be saved or rescued or helped or restored. And so here in history, we see an actual example of what God is talking about. God allowed himself to be eaten by locusts. And he used that old rugged wooden cross to bring about an organization and a hope of his spirit at Pentecost. And if you read any historian, they would say history got turned upside down. The Roman ethic of being self-centered, not giving your money away to anybody, got turned upside down by this movement in history called the church. Where God took an old rugged cross and flipped it and used it to change the world. And if God can use an old wooden cross to change the world, then maybe he could use your circumstance as well. Whatever difficulty you've had, whatever challenge you're going through, you can look at history and say, if God did that with this, maybe I could trust him as well. The lastly, in closing, he says the third section of the book is actually a long, long, long-term future that you can trust in what he calls the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is, I want you to prepare, he says, prepare for the end-of-time cleanup. The end-of-time cleanup. I want you to know that one day God is going to send his garbage truck. And as he sends his garbage truck, you've always wondered, you've prayed these prayers, God, when are you going to fix these? God, when are you going to take care of this? God, when are you going to fix what's broken in the world? I want you to know that I am going to come and I am going to fix what's broken in the world. I am going to come and pick up the trash. And you're worried right now because you're like, hey, God, why don't you fix this now? And I understand that. I want you to know, chapter 3 is all about how one time in the future I'm going to come and I'm going to judge, I'm going to fix, I'm going to clean up the trash. He says it this way. He goes, in that day, I will bring judgment on the world. And many of us struggle with that. We say, I don't want a judging God. I don't believe in a judging God. Really? Now, you say that, but think for a second. At one side, you say, I don't believe in a judging God. And then a few minutes later, you say, why doesn't God take care of the problem of evil in the world? At one moment, God shouldn't judge. The next minute, you're saying, why doesn't God judge quicker? The day of the Lord, this garbage truck, is the answer to that question. God will one day hold people to account for the bad things they've done. 
And if you believe in a God who picks up the trash, you can stop being bitter toward others because you don't need to pick up the trash and keep track of everybody's trash because that's what's got you so resentful. That's what got you so angry. That's what's got you mired in bitterness. When you trust in this thing called the day of the Lord, it's a way of saying, God, I'm going to trust you to be the judge so I don't have to. More than that, the main message of the Bible is that when God's pickup truck comes to pick up the trash in life, he says to you and I, I have made a way to separate you from your trash. Because I'm filled with trash. If God picked up the trash in my life right now, he'd pick up the bitterness that I'm attached to. He'd pick up the self-centeredness that I'm attached to. But through the person of Jesus, God made a way to separate us from our trash. So one day he can come and incinerate all the trash without incinerating the people he loves. He loved us enough, but he had to separate us from our trash so he could deal with the trash while spending eternity with us. And the practical reality of this is that when you get that God is the one who can take out the trash, you can be a much more merciful, forgiving person because you're not keeping track all the time. God will restore for the years the locusts have eaten. So I want you to pick one habit as the band does this last song. As you came in today, we gave you a piece of paper. If you pull out the piece of paper, what is one habit? There's nothing on the piece of paper, by the way. What is one habit that you need to shred in order to begin the restoration process? You say, you know what? It's my insensitivity. What's one of those blind spots that you need to wail or you need to lament or you need to own in order for God to begin that restoration process you're hoping for? Now, if you're like me, there's a bunch of nosy people looking over your shoulder right now. And so you're not going to write down anything that people are going to go, oh, you struggle with that. So here's what I'd recommend. Code. This circle represents my self-centeredness. This line represents my need to reprioritize my marriage. This line, this gamma, sigma symbol represents the fact that I need to become more active in my child's life. During this next song, I want you to just think and maybe write some symbol on this piece of paper that represents one habit that you would like to shred before God that he could begin a restoration in your life. As the band comes to an end, I would encourage us all to walk out the door after the song, and we have that shredder set up for you in the lobby. And if you feel called to take that thing and say, God, this is my call, that you would shred this habit in my life. I'm ready to let it go, that you bring restoration. Let's listen together. Well, I'm glad we didn't have more time. I had four. I love the words of that song. What do you need to give up? And God, I want to be washed. I want to be cleansed. I want to be restored. I want a new day. So I had four letters. In case you want to try and guess what they are. No, I'm just kidding. As we leave today, the band's going to continue to play rather reflectively. So if you would just, as we leave today, instead of sort of getting up immediately and talking, just wait till you get to the atrium to talk. Out in the foyer, we've got these six shredders set up. If you don't feel particularly called to shred something, that's fine. You can just walk on by. But if you feel like, yes, I want to seal this moment, I say, God, there's a habit I want to change. For me, there's an area of bitterness I want to let go of. There's a specific area of my life that I want to initiate in that I'm currently not. And there's an area of my life that I'm tempted to give up on, that I want to commit to God not to give up on, that I'm going to place my hope and recline on Him. As you walk out today, you can just go up to one of the shredders. Say, God, I want you to shred this habit in my life. Is my way of trusting you for restoration. So while we stand together, I'll have a prayer. And as you go out, if you'd like to shred, you can. And if not, 
I'd least respect other people who might want to use that moment. Father, we thank you that you are a God of restoration and mercy. You're slow to anger. You love to relent from doing harm. And yet you love us enough not to allow us to hold on to or build our nests in behaviors and habits that destroy our lives. God, I ask that this would be a, a time of, of transformation, a time of realigning, a defining moment for each one of us to awaken to some of those blind spots, to awaken to the possibility of hope in the midst of tragedy. We thank you for being such an involved God in our life. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll see you all next week.